hope you're satisfied, asshole. You just blew your chance to cover the world. Well, guess fucking what? I don't really fucking care. You want to know fucking why? Because I don't fucking live in the fucking world. I live in fucking New York City. So go fuck yourself. The lives of several New York City reporters are forever changed over the course of a single day. Special guests Shahir Dowd and Matt Kroll from the only podcast about movies join us to talk about why Brazilians love sex in the city, how Randy Quaid makes me sad, and what happens when Kurt Loder replies all. Then we find out if the paper stands the test of time. Time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of The Test of Time. I'm James Brief, and joining me, as always, is my friend Alan Noah. But wait, we have more guests. But welcome, Alan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And I am very excited to welcome our two other guests, Matt Kroll and Shahir Dowd from the only podcast about movies, returning to the show. Welcome back, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's nice to traverse the the multiverse of film podcasts from our dimension, where, of course, we are the only one. But now to come to yours, it's always lovely to see you both. And, you know, it's been a while since we've done this podcast together, but... I have mentioned several times that you guys have the best (laughs) name of a podcast ever. I just love it every time I hear it. It is fantastic. <laughs> yes. So much so that we've we've made the iconography and when we just did a graphic refresh, we made it the asterisk. Like our our little icon now is just the asterisk yeah. next to the word only. That's because we know. We know. I, it's it's great. <laughs> it, it, it's a it's a really nice looking yeah. asterisk. I mean, I will point out the obvious from community as well, which is that it does look like a giant butthole on a planet. Which also just <laughs> works. So I'm here That's for it. That's how logo. We're a giant butthole. It's yeah. multiple levels. It all works. It's great. Uh, and I love listening to your guys' show. And we've been trying to coordinate having you guys back on for a while. And then, you know, there was a pandemic and that kind of messed up plan. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, and the world. But mainly, I think the main thing people were talking about with COVID is how it messed up this podcast episode and delayed it. Yes. Uh, yeah. But finally, we are here all together again, and we're going to talk about the paper. But first, I do just want to mention something unrelated to podcasts and movies and all of the other stuff. And that's the fact that, Shahir, you completed a triathlon recently, and it was your first triathlon. Is that right? It was. And I know you're a triathlete, right? Like, so you are, so we can sidebar here on triathlons for a little bit. I am not a triathlete. I am training for my first one. I just signed up for it. It's at the end of August. And I would love to completely derail this conversation and just talk about, like, (laughs) protein intake and workout regimens and James, Matt, listeners, I promise I won't. These two could sidebar on games. We could have just two sidebars running concurrently. <laughs> James, I did just beat Skyrim in 16 hours, so I don't know if that is an, equi- <laughs> an equivalent of a triathlon or not. Uh, well, the reason I brought it up was only because I just feel like the Venn diagram of podcasters who talk about movies who are also in like the New York metro area who are also like doing their first triathlon in 2022 like that just seems like what are the odds you know I'll tell you one one way in which it came up in relation to movies and I don't know if either of you have seen The Northman no I haven't we received an email about this and it was something I noted when I was watching it because as part of the triathlon, I had to learn how to swim. And I had never swum laps before. Same. Uh, you always go, oh, I can swim until you're like forced to actually swim at length. And it's like, well, this is a whole different thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, whole yeah. Different very game. different. Yeah. And then um, in the Northmen, a lot of people are noting the way Alexander Sazgard does essentially a weird breaststroke. 
Um, okay. And it's like his brush stroke is really specific. And you watch it and go, that feels inefficient. But at the same time, it's like that dude is angry and out for revenge. And if you're angry and out for revenge, this is maybe how you would do brush stroke, where you're just trying to maximize the amount of time you can brush stroke. Because he swims <laughs> like a long time to he get back to He slaughters the water. Is yeah, really yeah. What he's happened. kind of murdering the water in that one. So so maybe as part of your training regimen for the triathlon, uh, Skazgad for uh, the Northman, uh, I think they did a... Um, uh, a summary of his workout routine in GQ magazine, which I <laughs> I thought was just hilarious to read. This is all about how he got his traps to look that way. And the second one is I'd watch the Northman just to watch his breaststroke technique um, to see if it's a, if it's worth anything to you. Okay, all right, I, I will I will incorporate that into my uh, my training regimen. Um, yeah, <laughs> but I, I did just want to mention that and and just say also congratulations. That's awesome that thank you did. You, that. Thank you. Yeah. It was a shorter triathlon. It wasn't a full full triathlon, and I was horrible. Uh, my my swim time was just atrocious. Uh, I will say I'm I'm a pretty good cyclist, so my cycle speed was good. But uh, swimming and running, which is like two thirds of the triathlon, were pretty pathetic. But I finished it, so I was happy with that. You finished, and that that yeah. is amazing. Finishing a triathlon is like going to Harvard. Like someone is like, <laughs> oh, he graduated from Harvard. No one's like, yo, how did you do at Harvard? And people that finish a triathlon are it's such a small group that everyone's in awe of that. I only did the triathlon so that on my tombstone you could write triathlete. That's the, that's the only reason I did it. There you go. Worth it. <laughs> totally, totally worth it. But let's talk about the paper. And I want to know what your relationship is with this movie because I'm pretty sure, Shahir, you mentioned the paper once yeah. on Twitter. And then, like, when we were emailing back and forth, like, you mentioned it again. So, like, I, I think <laughs> this was a movie that, like, you were into, like, you really wanted to talk about. So I grew up in Fiji, and then we moved to New Zealand when uh, when I was a teenager. And the way we consumed movies were through VHS tape. You would see it in a movie, but the way you repeated movies and the way you kind of got your your sort of basic movie education was through VHS tapes. And and essentially, the way that happened was whatever the tapes that came into your house were the movies that you would rewatch over and over again. And for a lot of people, it was like Terminator Two was a VHS tape that just got sure. a lot of play. Star Wars, obviously, for of a course. lot of people. And what would happen is that if you go to different from people's houses there are certain movies that end up on their shelves that aren't like the main talking point but for some reason end up on their shelves and that is the movie that gets a lot of play at their house like there were a lot of those like oddities uh that ended up in my house particularly in fiji where there was no like formal distribution system you know like the way people would like get a movie was that someone had a satellite that could tape a movie from New Zealand and then that movie would get circulated. It didn't matter what the movie was. So the paper was just a movie that happened to exist on my shelf. So I loved it as a kid and it, and I would rewatch it often because I just thought it was like just rip roaringly fun to watch. You know, like I just think it moves at a pace that is really, really fun to watch. I also have like learned this about myself, which is that, I think I am just drawn to movies with people who are struggling to try and do the right thing, which is also why Do the Right Thing is a movie that ends up on my shelf. But I, I, like, I'm just drawn to movies where people are like, everything is telling them to do one thing and their impulses tells them it's probably not the best idea to do this one thing, but this is essentially the right thing right. to do. And so I'm drawn to those kinds of stories. You know, like there are those kinds of movies that, that come and go in your life. And I found that the paper was one, like in my 20s, I was like, man, I really just want to watch that again. So I, found, I went and found a copy of it and watched Watched it again. Uh, Matt knows this. Uh, I I had a dinner party recently where you know when when we opened up and I was like I want to invite people over to watch a a New York movie, a fun really rapid paced movie, and one that probably a lot not a lot of people seen. So I asked people to come you know come over to my place to watch the paper. Um, wow. So I am going to champion this movie, which is probably going to give away what my feelings <laughs> are about it. Are. But I'm also very aware, <laughs> very very aware that this might be a, a, a solo boat ride. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how people feel. <laughs> about it but this is not a movie that people hold up in high regard or talk about very much um you know like if you think about michael keaton in newspaper movies the one everyone's going to mention is spotlight not the paper um but everyone here kind of went on to do amazing work but i think they all did amazing work in this particular movie so that's my starting point for this particular movie 
Well, the cast and crew is fantastic. I mean, uh, Ron Howard, the director. Uh, we've got uh, Michael Keaton. The, uh, of course, he's writing uh, the past uh, Batman. This is probably peak of his fame, I'd say. Yeah. Um, and you've got Robert Duvall, and you've got uh, Marissa Tomei and Glenn Close. The writer, it's a... How do you pronounce David Kim. I mean, this I must be one of his first films, right? It's one of his first movies, and then he goes on to write Mission Impossible, Jurassic Park, Spider-Man. Spider-Man. He yeah. goes on to have a—he has a huge career. And the story of how this particular film came about is really interesting in terms of, like, how Ron Howard approached them, what was happening with Ron Howard at this particular time. Essentially, the movie for Ron Howard was kind of a treatise on, like, what kind of filmmaker am I? And he kind of meets Kip at the right time because Kip has the script with his brother, and his brother happens to be, at the time that they were writing this, uh, the manager editor at Time Magazine. So right. the movie's kind of stacked with uh, a kind of insider knowledge and and with a passion for the actual industry. Uh, I quote a lot of movies, but I oddly quote the paper a lot in my <laughs> life. It's one of those quotables where like nobody knows what I'm talking about, and I'm and I'm I'm on a mission to change that. With that background, is this film supposed to be a metaphor for what back then in the mid '90s would have been Time versus Newsweek? I think it would actually be more the New York Post versus uh, the New York Times. Or the part of the Daily News or something. The yeah, the Daily News. You know, kind of that sort of, that tattle rag. But it's just that, you know, Stephen Kipp uh, has a background in the newspaper, in the journalism uh, business. And so he's being in the floor. And for me personally as well, I have worked in newsrooms. And so there was something about the way that this movie feels that really rings true to my experience of being in newsrooms as well. What kind of newsrooms have you worked in? Because I have worked in news with big air quotes. Like I worked at VH1 News and VH1 Classic News and Fuse News. So like a lot of music related stuff, but not like actual real current event news news. Yeah, I, I worked in uh, current events. I, my, I got my start in television okay. news uh, for the National News uh, Channel TV One in um, in New Zealand. So this is pre cable news. Um, the TV One uh, news was basically the the main news outlet that would at six p.m. every day there would be a one hour news show uh, that began with the top headlines. And and I was an editor there, so the story would could oftentimes come in at five fifty five, and it has to be on the air at six p.m. And so gotcha. there are stories, you know, like I remember running down the hallways with a tape in my hand. And like, if I tripped over, the national news would go to black. You know what I mean? Kind of thing. That, that's that's the, the sort of uh, pressure of it all. Gotcha. Gotcha. Matt, do you have any background in, in news? Uh, no true background to speak of. I would say, like you, Alan, I've worked uh, MTV News uh, in the studios for that. Also right. ran tapes around in those particular segments. Also, if you can count Total Request Live as news, I worked on that for quite a bit. Um, <laughs> but the closest to this, I think, was actually before I even went to film school. I basically... Uh, I won't even call it an internship. I knew uh, one of the head cameramen at WNDS, the Winds of New England, and uh, I used to shadow him and go on on like news shoots with him, then go back to the newsroom and like do run tapes or do copies or just sort of like it was like not even an internship. It was <laughs> just uh, a friend of a friend letting me tag along with his job for like a few weeks. Gotcha. Um, but same vibe, right? Like, I mean, what you hear is just described in what this movie shows is my experience as well. So it felt very, very true to that. You know, all three of you having experience, I have zero experience in this field. James, you're a doctor. Just chill, okay? <laughs> you know, I'm saying, you know, actually, I think you guys are kind of downplaying because honestly, we're all vaguely not quite millennial, not quite Gen X. and We're the oldest millennials. Yes, yeah. and really, and... What is the single most important pop culture event of our teenage years? The O.J. Simpson trial. Um, yes, but I'm thinking more <laughs> for teenagers. It's Kurt Cobain. But how did we learn about uh, the death of, uh, of Kurt Cobain? We learned it from MTV News. We didn't learn it from uh, Ted Koppel. We learned it from Kurt Loder and MTV News. Kurt Loder's dope, by the way. I don't know <laughs> if any of y'all have ever met Kurt Loder, but Kurt Loder used to go in and just slay. And he'd be the only person, even during my generation, that could go in and like just smoke a cigarette and no one gave him shit. He'd go in one take, one take loader, and we are done. The man was a fucking beast. I love him to death. That guy seemed cool. I remember once there was like some email going around when I worked at VH1 and 
for whatever reason, like everyone's email addresses were on it and people just kept replying all and like, hey, take me off of this. Yeah, me too. Like, no, stop replying all and saying that. And then Kurt Loader replied all with something like, you're all <laughs> fucking idiots. Why are you replying all and saying, take me off? And like, he just said the thing that everyone was thinking and it was Kurt Loader and everyone was like, okay, Kurt Loader did it. He, he fixed it. He solved the problem. Yep. Thank you, sir. There was this one other guy at MTV. I'm just wondering if you ever knew him, Matt Pinfield. Oh yeah, oh yeah, he oh always, yeah, yeah. He always seemed to me this one guy who seemed like that's not like a corporate guy. This guy seemed so yeah. cool. Was it? Was he awesome? Yeah. Yes, you are very accurate in that assessment. And he is a trough of yeah. musical knowledge. Yeah, that guy knows more about music than any human being that's probably ever lived. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, the opposite of MTV, I guess, would be this movie, The Paper, uh, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, obviously, this was not the first time seeing it for all of us. It was the first time for me. And Al, was, it was the first time for you, right? Yes, yes. So for three of us, and, and myself included, so for um, people out there uh, who haven't seen this film, The Paper, it's a movie from 1994. The movie takes place over a single 24 hours, and it depicts the chaotic nature of a New York City tabloid newspaper. In Brooklyn, two white businessmen are murdered and a pair of black teens are arrested. It seems like this is front page news, but is there more to the story? Henry, the Metro editor, he thinks so. He searches for the truth while also deciding if he wants to take a job at a rival, more respectable newspaper. He's under pressure from his wife, Marty, who's pregnant and worried that after she has the baby, her life will never be the same. Meanwhile, the newspaper's editor-in-chief, Bernie, finds out he has prostate cancer and tries to reconnect with his estranged daughter. The managing editor, Alicia, she's come to terms with her role and why everyone in the office hates her. In the end, all these characters make difficult choices that will impact their personal and professional lives. So the movie came out in 1994. I, to be honest, had never heard of it. Mm. So I'm going to guess that this movie was not a big box office hit when it first came out. It was a $20 million budgeted film, and it opened on March 18th, 1994. Actually, it opened on March 25th, 1994, the next week, uh, widely. Mm -hmm. And it opened at number three with $7 million. And number one, it was uh, D2, The Mighty Ducks. Okay, The Mighty Ducks. And the, the second film was another uh, very popular franchise. It was actually the 33rd film in the franchise. Uh, it's Bond, right? The Bond. No, Bond hasn't gotten that high, right? I'll give you guys a hint. It was technically about 0. 0.333 on the way to the 34th film. Oh, Naked Gun 33 and a third. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. I'm James. Because right. in my head, I was going, there wasn't that many Bond films. I know. Back I, in I, I, as soon as I said it, I was like, that's the can't be the correct. But I'm like, what else is there before yeah. the. Yeah. Yeah. If I said the yeah. 33rd and a third, it would have given it away. But the, this $20 million budgeted film, it eventually made $38 million domestically. So I'd never seen it before, but I remember seeing the trailer for this film. Mm. I must have come oh, right. out in 1993 or something. And that's when I was super psyched about trailers because of course there was no internet so you couldn't yeah. see anything about it except you know right for yeah. a big film yeah and i mean i'm a i'm a kid i'm probably going to see like and it's 94 maybe i'm going to see dumb and dumber or something right on the right. way of this yeah. film and i specifically remember going pass like yeah, hard pass this is or you know this is a grown-up <laughs> film definitely yeah. i do not want to watch this i am not asking my mom will you take me and uh, my buddies to see the paper mom come on it's opening this weekend <laughs> and that is the difference between you and i <laughs> right we, we were probably gonna go see naked gun 33 and a third yeah I remember it being Michael Keaton because I I kind of vaguely remember that from the trailer. But but yeah, I mean, but when you see everyone else in it, and then I'm watching the movie with my girlfriend, and I of course had to be like, "Do you recognize this actor?" And she's like, "No, who is that?" And I go, "That's Cousin Eddie from Christmas Vacation." And she's like, right, "Oh Randy my Quaid, god!" Because yeah. I knew she she's not going to yeah. know that you know Randy Quaid much for, except for that maybe Independence Day, I guess. But she thought he was unrecognizable. He's so different in this film. Every time I see Randy Quaid, it makes me sad hmm. Be because of like what happened to him where, in yeah. real life, like where he kind of was on the lamb <laughs> and like in 
Canada yeah. and like he was arrested and like I, I was reading the story before and honestly like I forgot it all already like it's all just <laughs> insane he's just gone batch it they couldn't have him in like the the vacation reboot that they did because he was like yeah on the lam or in hiding or something in Canada and I just feel like he's good in these kinds of roles as like the quirky guy who's like kind of an asshole but kind of lovable yeah this is Pete Quaid there's a moment when he slowly brings two stacks of newspapers into a room and then immediately decides to fire a gun into them in a newsroom, which definitely <laughs> strikes different, speaking of the test of time, today rather yeah. than back in 94. Yes. Um, but, like, that's just like, oh, yeah, Randy Quaid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because usually James and I will talk about, like, oh, they're smoking in an office and that doesn't yeah. stand the test of time. And I had definitely jotted that down in my notes in this movie of, like, oh, you, there sure are a lot of people smoking in these meetings in an indoor <laughs> office in New York City. You wouldn't see that anymore. But, yeah, then Randy Quaid shoots a gun and you're like, okay, <laughs> that is a way bigger deal and it's completely brushed off in the movie of like did i hear a gunshot yeah it was um mcdougall like that's him you know whatever my favorite line about smoking in this movie is when i can't remember who the i think it's the wall street reporter says did you know that they found ash in my urine right robert duvall says then keep your dick out of my ashtray i just i love that line so much i think that's that's hilarious (laughs) that is really really funny i did have a job pre-covid when i was working in an office where there were a lot of guys who vaped a lot in the office, mm. which you can't do, <laughs> by the way. Uh, and they just did it all the time anyway. It's like, there's probably chemicals. And they were kind of like that sort of Robert Duvall reaction of like, oh, are there? Okay. So I'm in love with this movie and I'm on a mission to make this the movie, which I know is like <laughs> a futile effort. I'm actually very curious about Matt, who has watched this for the first time and has heard me talk about this movie so much on our show in relation to everything. I'm very curious how this plays for the newbies in the room. Matt, go first. What would you think? Sure. Overall, it is delightful. And I do have to say that films of this ilk, or or I shouldn't even say this ilk, but this topic are tough for me. Shahir knows I am not a fan of the story about storytellers. Okay. Or, or writers in particular, or like newspaper. Like, I find them usually quite masturbatory in, in a weird way. I think that's totally fair. <laughs> this was not that. This, because it was such a slice of life for multiple people whose lives were tied to this newspaper. Yes, there's the story of the newspaper and the story, but there's also the story of Marissa Tomei and and the pregnancy and and worrying about what her place in the world will be after the baby comes. There's the story of of Glenn Close's Alicia, who actually kind of related to a lot in this movie because when you become sort of like a boss of things, you can no longer be the fun person anymore oftentimes, and that can be very hurtful even though someone has to be the fucking boss. You have the sort of mortality play of Robert Duvall's Bernie with not only cancer, but then being a huge dick and not connecting with his daughter and sort of his quest to either do that or, as the movie sort of goes, I like where it was. There wasn't some, like, giant moment of catharsis, per se, but it was almost like a moment of acceptance and maybe hope for a future thing. There's so many different human stories in this movie, and it does take place in 24 hours, and it does wrap up quite nicely. I, I enjoyed it much more than I thought I would. Oh, and the writing is, like, fast and quippy and top-notch, and that's the kind of stuff that I really gravitate towards when, like, and here I can totally see why you quote this thing, and <laughs> even, like, some of the most benign stuff, like, they just say stuff off to the side, and I was like, that's so fucking clever. Like, I think uh, Henry's talking to uh, uh, McDougal or whatever, and they're just getting back into the place after getting the quote from the cop, and he's like, what am I gonna do? I'm a columnist. This isn't what I do. He's like, you're not a columnist. You're a reporter that writes yeah. right. <laughs> and I was like, yep, done. <laughs> So that I really appreciate. But then I was also thinking about, honestly, the title of your show, uh, and James mm-hmm. and Alan. And that is where I started butting uh, heads with myself about this movie. Uh, there's a couple different tropes we can get into sort of later that I feel like in the year of someone's Lord 2022 don't actually square. And 
the things that I really like about this movie, how they're being sort of human-driven stories, which is great, does leave some characters out. So that, that's a bad thing. And then an interesting thing, which I haven't decided if it's good or bad, is Shahir, I actually disagree with your point about this movie overall being about characters finally doing a right thing based on morals. Hmm. I think there's one or two characters that do that, but most kind of don't. The drive for characters to do what they do, it feels very real and human, but very rarely altruistic. And I can get into that sort of later, which again, that doesn't disqualify it from being enjoyable and a great, and I, I would posit this movie is great. I think it was definitely would be perceived as great in its time, even though it kind of didn't get its heyday as we've sort of all discussed. However, comma, but I don't think that in 2022, there's, there's a lot of stuff that sort of weighed it down for me around it, which it's funny. It is the movie's fault, but it's not the movie's fault, but it is the movie's fault, but it's not the movie's fault. So there's, we'll get into that sort of angle of it later, I think. Sure. Well, I, I think the elephant in the room about the movie while we're on a podcast called The Test of Time is the fact that this movie is called The Paper, and it's all about the newspaper industry. And of course, newspapers are still a thing. But like, literally, when was the last time any of you guys read a newspaper? Like, do you subscribe to the paper? Am I putting my foot in my mouth here? No, I mean, I don't. My girlfriend subscribes to the digital New York Times. So okay, that's close. Yeah, I'm a subscriber of the digital print, but I, whenever possible, I will try to pick up a physical copy. But I do it for nostalgia. Okay. I, like, it's 100% an exercise in reminiscing about the way things were. Right. That's 100% what happened to me recently. I picked up one of those free newspapers. Yeah. And now they've merged, by the way. It's Metro AM New York. Right. And, uh, okay. and just reading it like... Felt like 2015. I don't know. It yeah. just kind of felt like I was that age and just wherever I was because just reading it with this weird green headline, just the feel of newspaper and just you read the whole thing and I'm like, I, I didn't learn anything. But uh, <laughs> the actual conflict in the film, there's this undertone of like, we got to beat the TV guys. Like they have it so easy because they can broadcast like whenever they need to. There's a big deal about how you only get one shot at it. I don't know, do papers even do like morning edition and evening edition anymore? I don't even know if they do. They might do, yeah. But, uh, maybe they do, but no one's buying a newspaper uh, in the evening anyway. Now the thing is you could do this story and immediately correct it, you know, like yeah, online. Exactly. The thing in the film, they ultimately figure out that these black teens that were sort of framed, not framed, but were suspected of causing this murder. It's not like they, they were, were put there. Like, yeah, they were scapegoated. Yeah, sure. like, if anyone's interested in, in like a real world analogy, there's a documentary called Murder on a Sunday Morning about kind of exactly the situation where a black teenager in Florida wanders past a murder scene and ends up going to prison for that murder. I actually take it back. They were framed. This two specific teens themselves, the human beings, characters, not intentionally them, but the mob that eventually does the, the thing, whole and thing all is this stuff set up as a race crime. To yeah. set up as a yeah, they were attempting to frame black people. Right, exactly. That is no, what. Right. Yeah. So there, I guess there was a frame job, just not for a specific character. The thing is, is that like Henry is trying to prove their innocence before the newspaper goes to print. Like, that deadline is real. And, of course, in the movie, they, like, push it back 12 times. They stretch times. it by three hours. Yeah, like. so in an online world, there are still deadlines, but there is less of a sense of, like, urgency, like, do or die. Like, if the New York Times posts something and it's wrong and they correct it, like, yeah, damage can be done. Like, you could still hurt somebody's reputation and, yeah, then you correct it, but people are still going to run with it and retweet it and screenshot it. And, and you can see how that's not great, but it is a different thing than having a front page newspaper say these guys are guilty versus these guys are innocent. That has a lot more weight in this movie as it would in 1994 than it just does today. And it's even more than that because today there could be a headline at 3 a.m. that says Alan Noah is a murderer. And by 3.06, they correct it that says, oops, we meant Alan Noah completes a marathon. <laughs> and, you know, by the time people wake up, your life After is After murdering ruined. someone. <laughs> but, uh, but this is kind of true that in 1995, if that paper did get out and these kids were on the cover of the Daily News, and it wasn't just like they're guilty, it was one of these gotcha. people haven't it read a gotcha. New York Post. Yeah. 
it's a classic New York tabloid uh, yeah. thing. Gotcha. And it's yeah. these two black kids. And it's, you know, all these people in New York that want them to be guilty are going to see them. And these kids will forever be murderers. So that is totally true. So you're right. The, the entire premise of the film, even though newspapers certainly exist right now, New York Times would just correct it at NewYorkTimes.com. And, and the thing is, I agree with Matt's assessment that whether Henry Hackett is doing this because he believes it's the right thing to do, whether he's doing it because the night before this, they fucked up and they ran a parking story, which actually comes into play in the film uh, through its entirety instead of the murders, yeah. or whether it's because he's pissed off at Alicia for like the way she, she basically circumvents his decision-making capacity, and whether it has to do with more than that, he's about to have a baby, so he's feeling the pressure of like, what is it that I do with my life and what is it I'm going to do with the rest of my life? We've, we've talked about the cast. If at any point we can, I do want to talk about Spalding Gray, who is the person who plays the managing editor of the uh, the, the Sentinel, where he goes for a job interview. Sure. Um, but whether it's the pressure of like the manager of the Sentinel saying, hey, you guys run a really cute newspaper down there. You kind of got uh, run over last night, though, didn't you? And all those things kind of play in his mind. But I also fundamentally believe that he's like, and everyone in the room knows this. Um, you know, McDougal says it as well. Is like, this bust is bullshit. They put their case forward saying, like, these kids were just walking past. And everyone kind of knows that that's the case. But they're also kind of like navigating the reality of, well, the perp walk is at 7 o'clock. Our paper goes out at 8. So between the hours of 7 and 8, as far as we're aware, these two kids are caught. And it's also under the backdrop of, like, a rising New York summer heat wave and a crime spree that the mayor wants to, like, you know, suggest that New York is still safe to visit and there's not a lot of crimes going on. So... There's like this whole milieu of stuff going on. But McDougal, at the end of the film, crystallizes it all together to Alicia, which is like, look, we're a shitty little newspaper that runs headlines because we think they're cute. We run stupid headlines that we think are cute. We run parking stories because we, you know, we go after things that like are human interest. But we have never until this moment ever run a story that we knew was wrong. Right. And that's the thing that Alicia kind of takes away from that moment going, okay, I get it now. And, and that's the thing that Henry is kind of like, you know, like there's all these reasons that like he wants to get this story right. And many of them aren't about the, the best interests of these kids. In fact, he doesn't even know the kids. You know, he makes up stories about the kids when he goes to talk to the police officers. Right. But at the heart of it, he kind of knows that if we do this thing, we will be part of the wave that is going to tarnish these kids. And again, they're not the biggest paper in town. They're just like a, one of like a dozen newspapers that are going to put these kids on the front page as murderers. But, you know, he says, we stand alone on this one. You know, like we will make the choice to try to do what's right on this. It's complicated. Like his reasons for doing it are complicated. But I also love that every part of this story is framing it around people who are essentially all flawed all messed up in some way, who've all yeah. made mistakes across their entire life. And this is just one story that's going to be like one of 365 stories, you know, in the year. But there's just this thing about like getting it right today that matters. So it's interesting because I think Henry, it, they set up his character pretty clearly throughout the film. I don't think in the core of Henry's being based on what this film showed me, he doesn't actually care about what is right in the context of justice in the world. Mm. He cares about a lot of sort of selfish things, his his career, his uh, ability to get a, a story out that no one else has, to make it so his paper isn't seen as like a cute little whatever, yada, yada, yada. I mean, even the way he treats uh, Martha, uh, his wife, Marissa Tomei, up till the end is pretty, pretty rough uh, yeah. in, in that sort of regard. Sure, absolutely. But what I find interesting about the movie is all of his motivation is truly selfish, He's also happens to be on the right side hmm. of so societally what's going on. Weirdly enough, one of the only people I think that like actively does a complete right thing arc is Alicia is Glenn Close yeah. because she does a 180, realizes something else when she eventually stops the presses again and orders the rething. And now it's later on like hour five of OT for like 30 union <laughs> yeah. guys. Those are union drivers out there. Mister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> like uh, she to me in this film was one of the, the people that like did turn around and actually do the right thing in a difficult time for the right reasons randomly enough. You know, like if you think about a movie like Do the Right Thing as well, where the reasons why Mookie throws the trash can through the pizza window are really complicated and don't make a lot of sense. Right. I think there's like a compelling argument about 
people being part of the machine of the world turning in an interesting way. And this movie's about time opens with like the inside of a clock kind of turning. Sure. And there's this interesting thing that I like when I was watching it this time around, I think there's kind of a beauty to the to the storytelling here, which is that Henry leaves the newspaper believing he has failed and believing that, oh shit, as much as I tried to push for this thing to be the way that I thought was the right thing to do, it's not going to be that way. And I've failed and I've lost my job and I'm walking away. And now, even by the end of the movie, he doesn't even care because his baby is, is there. Well, like he doesn't care. No, he does, because the first thing he does when he walks in that room to see his wife is read the paper for five seconds. And he tosses it away. <laughs> and he tosses it away. Because yeah, he eventually. Felt, he's surprised that it actually turned that way, because as he walked out of the newspaper, they were running the original gotcha story. Henry's first love is that paper, and he neglects his wife. <laughs> well, she holds up the paper and holds it to him, by the way. I mean, in his defense, the baby was already born. What's he going to do at that point? And Marty says kind of the critical line that, that is thematically risen in that moment that she learns from Catherine O'Hara's character in that sort of really fun wine, uh, liquor-driven uh, mm-hmm. lunch, where she says, all the garbage, everything, you forget about it the instant you see your baby. That's what it is for Henry as well. He walks out and he just, he sees his baby and it's like, what was I even doing today? You know, like, and he turns up and the paper is like, oh, they actually ran the they didn't do it headline. And he's like, okay, cool. He doesn't care. I think what gets me about stories like that and character arcs like that is let's just say you're correct and that is the thing and that is what he's feeling. And then the movie's over. Like, I just watched this dude be a shithead to his wife for like an hour, 50 minutes. And now like he has an epiphany and hooray. Whereas for instance, again, Alicia is rough and bad and wrong to a lot of people and then goes through hell and high water to like do a right thing and like complete something where it's not just like, oh yeah, maybe I was wrong about being a dick like this. And so like, (laughs) I I, I don't think it plays in those terms. I think it's, I think it's literally, he picks up the paper and he's like, huh. And for me, what I think is beautiful about that is again, he walks out of the, the printing press having failed and the machinery of the world and Alicia and everyone involved and like McDougal having that conversation with Alicia, Sandusky being in the bar with a gun, shooting mm-hmm. Alicia through the door. It's like the machine of the world course corrects at the end of the that's day. That's the interesting and, point, and I think 100%. that's beautiful. I just think Henry's a character that I don't like. I mean, the that's movie fine. puts all these characters together in a way that makes it incredibly interesting and compelling to watch how all the different intricate watch pieces move a day forward. Yeah. Like, that's that's 100%. Yeah. I appreciate this movie for having characters that I think are making correct decisions, wrong decisions, moral decisions, immoral decisions, and they're all over the spectrum. Yeah. Right. It was interesting. I, I realized that Brian Grazer, he produced this film, and he produced uh, 24 as well. Yeah, and this was part of Brian Grazer and, and Ron Howard's Imagine Entertainment and that kind of reforming of what they were doing uh, as, a, as a production company at that point as well. Yeah, and you know, I think Henry is thinking about the black kids who are framed because it's right also because he's got all of these other motivations and other things that are, are factoring into his decision. And I think that like in terms of looking at it in a test of time perspective, you can see this shit still happening today where like police and media would just be like, oh, they're innocent. They're guilty. It doesn't matter. And like for him, he's like, they're kids. They're human beings. This is wrong. You're right, Matt. Like it's not purely altruistic, but it is at least nice that he appreciates the fact that, yeah, we are going to ruin some lives for no reason because of what? Like, we don't want to pay the union guys overtime or whatever. Like, fuck that. Yeah. I think that the the interesting thing is, at least for me, based on the character that is presented, and again, this is not a slight to the movie. This is sort of a, a judgment on the character, which was written well. This is a compliment to the movie is what I am saying. Yeah. I truly don't believe, based on the character the movie shows me, that he actually truly cares really what side of the moral-immoral spectrum this falls on. I think he appreciates and weaponizes the fact that he's on the correct moral side of the spectrum. But everything we're taught about this man, he has motivations based solely around the paper. The, the titular paper. Right. And that's what I find interesting about him. I think, like, McDougal, weirdly enough, has more of that, but he's, like, a fringe person. I don't think Alicia does until the very end. Like, there, there's a lot of different stuff along those lines. In the spectrum of, like, the way in which these people actually interact with the two young men who are going to jail, like, they don't have any 
relationship to them other than they are symbolic of what they believe is right and wrong. And Henry says, when he's talking to Bernie on the rooftop, he says, every morning we start again from zero. We run the news all day. We work our asses off to get it to the door at 7 p.m. And in the morning, we start again from zero. But that's the gig. And from my experience of the newspaper, of television news, that is very true. You know, like you get these stories in and it's like for the next few hours, I care only about this missing person. I care only about this thing that this politician has done. And then the next day, there's another story and it goes into the background. What's interesting to me is sometimes... I think about the one story that I can't let go of. You know, like there's one or two stories in the newsroom that I just can't let go of. And I feel like for Henry, if this had gone the other way, this would be one of those stories where it's like this one story he can't quite let go of. Right. True. I just feel like it would be because it was incorrect, not because of the morality based around it. Like like that's your judgment of the of him as a human being. But does yeah. that but does that complexity make the movie experience richer? Oh, yes, 100%. Though this is the interesting thing that I do want to discuss uh, as far as another test of time moment. The sole driving force of the plot are these two African-American kids Mm -hmm. getting inadvertently framed for a a crime that was set up to look racial in nature. Yeah, yeah. They are almost zero character in this movie. They are are a plot device. That's true. And I found it difficult. Like, it, it, it knocked me out of the movie more times than it didn't because, like... It's telling the story of the paper. It's in the title. I get it. But they're using young black men in a race crime as a narrative device to push forward the importance of people's lives telling people about this crime. And that to me today in 2022 was really hard to latch onto for me. That's fair. Um, I didn't expect it to sort of do that. And I was like, this movie was made excellently. I really liked a lot of it. And there are characters I don't connect with, but that makes it even richer to Shahir's point. Why am I left with a bad taste in my mouth? And it is because, spoiler alert for my opinion entirely, I don't think this movie can survive the test of time for me because of the way it is structured around that in our current day and age. That's just a me thing. I hope and want other people to enjoy this movie. I think there's so much great stuff to mine from it. If we're going to tell the story, I want to see the story of those two kids. I don't want to see the story of how difficult it is to tell a bunch of people about that thing in one way or the other. I don't know. That was just where I hit. I don't want to be a downer, uh, but that's kind of where I landed. No, I, I think that's interesting, and I, and I think that's a very valid point about this. My only counter to that is that while I agree that that is true to the filmmaking experience of this movie. I also believe that the way in which the story deals with the subjects of the stories that are happening in a newspaper is true to how like people have no relationship to the people in that story. Like when Hackett and McDougal go into that cop's room and say they've got scholarships and they kind of look at each other going, we're, we're just making this up. It's because mm-hmm. they have no relationship to those yeah. kids. Those kids are in the abstract. You know, we, we reviewed uh, Green Book on our, on our podcast. And, and I think mm-hmm. that was my point about that movie Green Book, which is that it felt like it centered a story around Viggo Morganston, whereas I was much more interested in the sort of inner life of Mahashala Ali's character. Yeah. In this case, while I agree that that is true, I also think the nature of the story that is being told is intrinsically that way, which is that the people in the newsroom, much like in Spotlight, don't have much of a relationship to the actual subjects that they're dealing with. In in many ways, telling the story of the newspaper people is kind of acknowledging the fact that they don't have much of a relationship. They're not visiting those people. But that's my point. They are in the story that these things are based yeah. on. The newspaper people are not the important people in the story. I think in this case, the newspaper people are the story. That's what this movie is about. That's the narrative of the film. If you present something like this and you use a sort of race crime in this way, again, in 2022, and it should have been like this longer in my opinion because you know we all know what the state of the world. My point is it makes it hard for me to care about the newspaper when we're told about this hate crime and that's not the focus. And again, I know what this movie's about. It's in the title. Like, I get it. But it's hard for me Mm. to latch on to a great film because of the way it is structured around that thing. That's all I'm saying. I understand what you're saying. And, you know, one thing that kind of stuck out at me, and, uh, you know, this is also like a test of time thing, is that they are talking about the racial tension 
And, you know, in 2022, okay, sure, that's a thing, unfortunately, but the movie sort of paints it as like, there's a race war that's about to break out between the white community and the black community in Brooklyn. And like that to me, from like a test of time perspective, I was like, that doesn't really feel like a thing. Because it's interesting, the way in which the film kind of depicts that racial animosity is basically you just see at the courthouse, there's these two sides, and they're two very small sides. And that actually rings true to one of my first experiences of New York City, which was that when I came to New York City, the big debate raging across cable news was the, the... public anger and animosity at the mosques that was going to be built uh, down close by uh, downtown uh, New York City. And I was like, oh man, this thing is getting hot out here. People are getting really fired up. And then I went down (laughs) to, to Wall Street and I wandered around and I was like, there's nobody talking about this here. Like, I remember because I walked past uh, a halal cat guy, like, doing his daily prayers on the mat. And, I, like, in my mind, I was like, oh, boy, watch out. Like, who's going who's gonna to jump in now? But, like, nobody cared. There, there was a moment about, like, living in New York City, maybe living in America, where it was like, there is this manufactured idea of, like, what is the animus on the street that really most people just kind of go about their daily lives. You know what I mean? Right. I think that's a very good point. I mean, and, you know, you could certainly make that critique about the media now. And I'm sure it was probably true in 1994 where, like, the thing that the guys on TV yeah. or the newspaper reporters are talking about as, like, this has everyone all riled up. Does it, though? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think that's fair. I've always had this uh, wonder about what people think about America, and specifically New York City. And I've been abroad, and a lot of people uh, in Brazil, my friends in Brazil, a lot of people had, like, the Sex and the City uh, DVD collection back in the day, because that was a New York thing there. And they couldn't help but wonder. <laughs> you know, is a depiction of New York. Was it realistic? Uh, you know, there are things about it that are going to be realistic, but it's more kind of the feel of these things. It's the little things. And there are a couple things in this film that just gave me almost like chills of this is so New York. And it opens on uh, audio from this uh, AM radio station called 1010 Winds. Yeah. And yeah. everyone from the area knows this feel. And I'm sure where people are from the am news station near you just has that feel they basically got the uh 1010 wins announcer to do the beginning it sounds so new york there's a part where um henry um michael king's character he looks at the tv guys and it's not just some random guy it's this guy chuck scarborough who's Mm. like the uh new york city nbc anchor and one thing this film absolutely nails is that it does have a lot of New York feel to it. Yeah. And you know, this is not one of those, uh, you know, Superman four where there's like Vancouver mountains in the background, yeah, of Metropolis, yeah. New York. I, I love their apartment, by the way, like in the opening, like their little one bedroom apartment that Henry is sleeping on in his full suit. I was like, that is a legit New yeah. York one bedroom. Yeah. yeah, that that stands the test of time. Uh, I'm I'm so sick of seeing films where it's like, oh man, I'm a barista in New York, but I gotta, oh, I'm getting ready for work in my three bedroom apartment, and you're like, yeah. this is not how this functions. Their kitchen is tiny, like they barely fit on that bed. I was like, that yeah. is that's the quintessential New York experience. Right, right. While Marissa Tomei is like nine and a half months pregnant, and like yeah, yeah, yeah. like the, the two of them can barely fit on the bed. Well, we heard from Matt that the film perhaps does not as a whole stand the test of time. I'm at the edge of my seat to find out (laughs) what you hear things. Do you think it stands the (laughs) test of time? I'm just curious what what you think. Well, I think I have an interesting relationship to that question of what is the test of time. And and when we've been on the show, I feel like I'm the one suggesting the movie often. Uh, And and there's another movie that we are, uh, that I'm pitching as well to you guys as well. Um, When do I get to pitch a movie? You pitch any time. Have you pitched a movie? (laughs) You can pitch, Matt. It's fine. Yeah. All right. Don't don't let you hear bully you. But but my thing about that, that question of the test of time is I also think that in some ways, whether the movie is relevant to the experience that we have in 2022 is one part of that, but also whether the movie is an effective time capsule for 1994. 
And I think this movie is a really effective time capsule from 1994 where you watch it and go, that is a really lived experience of 1994. And the reason I say that is... One of the movies I watched for the first time this year during the pandemic was Howard Hawks' uh, His Girl Friday. I, I don't know if you, you've seen that film, His Girl Friday. No. You haven't seen it. It is one of the, the most famous newspaper stories of all time. And it, it is like the definition of the rat-a-tat sort of um, rapid-fire dialogue story about a newspaper editor who has uh, a reporter whom he used to be engaged to but is now engaged to someone else. And he wants to get her involved in this story that is happening throughout the day that is slowly developing. I went to film school. His Girl Friday is one of those lauded, you know, top 100. It's probably on the AFI's list, uh, best of films. And whenever I watched people talking about it, they only talk about how great this movie is and how amazing uh, it stands at this time and how exciting it is to watch. The thing that was interesting for me was when I watched it is that the only thing I saw in this movie was how racially prejudiced the entire narrative is, both from the main characters, the filmmakers, the story that's being told itself. It is about this, you know, this newspaper editor who wants to correct the story. The story that he wants to correct is about a, a white man who has killed a black police officer, and the newspaper editor believes that by having that person prosecuted, it will set about the mayor to use the black vote to overturn the election, and he can't let that happen. And it's weird when I sort of went to do follow-up research on the movie i could find one writer that actually talked about the dynamics of what's at play for that story and it's kind of like what you're talking about matt which is that there's this black character in in his girl friday who's never seen never heard from but in fact everyone is working in the opposite direction to what they're doing in the paper which is that they believe that this white man has to be released even though it's very clear that in, in that film he did it he 100 percent did it and they come up with this amazing um sort of theory of justice as to why he should be let free and they kind of blamed the gun um which is sort of this hilarious thing about his girl friday uh it's amazing to me because that's not a part of that story that anyone talks about if you google his girl friday or look at his girl friday i i can point you to the one article that i found written by a person of color who talks about it in that dynamic but my relationship to the question of the test of time does not mean that His Girl Friday does not stand the test of time because that movie has clearly stood the test of time and is incredibly important in the history of cinema and in the the history of the way in which we discuss films and our relationship to it can evolve over time. And I think it's also a perfect snapshot of that time. That movie came out right as Gone with the Wind came out and the internal racism of that film is so embedded that most people who watch it wouldn't even notice it and Mm -hmm. wouldn't even talk about it. And so for me, the thing about the paper is it is a perfect snapshot of New York in 1994. And I still get a lot of pleasure of watching it from that point of view. I also still think for me personally, the actual narrative of it, the struggle to try and do the right thing and fail and constantly fail and fuck it up. Like what I love is this idea that Hackett puts into the world this idea that we shouldn't let this happen. And then he fails. But then the machines turns in order to make it happen. It's like, you know, he's, he put this idea into the world and it comes true, whether he really believed it or not. So for me, all of that, you know, stands the test of time. Watching Robert Duvall in this film and the way he talks about the relationship between, you know, the people who work in journalism and the stories they cover. In fact, it actually relates to what you're saying, Matt, which is the Pablo Picasso story. I have quoted the Pablo Picasso story more than probably any story in in any movie. Like, my wife had to give a, a, a talk to a room full of, like, very esteemed Nobel laureates and scientists, and she asked me to rewrite some of her speech, and I wrote in the Pablo Picasso story into into that speech. How'd that go? Uh, really well. Good, good. I'm a good writer, and I, could, I, I tied it together. <laughs> um, because he says the thing as well, which is that the people we cover... It is their world, not ours. And we will never keep up with their world. In, in this case, he's talking about someone very famous and this idea that they think that they could go to a restaurant and order $9,000 with food without any consequence. And it's this person who can just scribble on a napkin and that will pay for their meal. And he, and he says, the job we do is not about the money. We will never be those people. We are there to cover those people. To me, that is beautiful, prescient, and stands the test of time. And it resonates throughout the entirety of this film. Um, So I I have a complex answer to that question of the test of time because I think the test of time can mean many, many things. Sure. It can. You know, I love this film. And and again, I do want to talk about Spalding Gray if we can. Talk about him. What what, what do you want to say about him? 
Well, do you guys know who Spalding Gray is? Does anyone like care about who Spalding Gray is? Or you mentioned it, and then like I pulled up his IMDb, and like I didn't recognize a, a ton that he that he's done, to be honest. Well, Spalding Gray uh, used to do a lot of spoken word storytelling, and he's amazing. Uh, I've got a couple of his books, and filmmakers like uh, Steven Soderbergh and Jonathan Demme would actually take his spoken word performances and fill them in, in, in interesting ways. It would still just be him sitting at a table telling a story, uh, and these stories are like really complicated about his relationship to his life and his family and and, and the world. You know, like he was in uh, famously he was in the Killing Fields, and so he talks about uh, I think one of his famous books is called Swimming to Cambodia. And he talks about the relationship between America and Cambodia and the Vietnam War and his relationship to all that. So I got really interested in Spalding Gray. I watched a bunch of his stuff. And then when I was in college in 2001, I actually got to see him perform live. And it was amazing because I also got the sense that he had come to terms with a lot of his anxiety. I remember there's this one line that he talks about his son in in that spoken word thing, which is that his son is kind of like, you know, doesn't like the fact that he keeps calling his son beautiful. He, he has to come to terms with like not calling his son beautiful, but he says when he embraces his son, I love you so much, but time is slowly stealing you away from me. And it's just this line that I've always remembered. Um, Spalding Gray is in this movie. I think he's got like this hilariously pompous part. It's perfectly Spalding Gray. You know, like he's perfectly cast for that role. Um, in 2002, the year after I saw him, Spalding Gray was in a car accident, which um, left him severely... Uh, like he had neurological damage and, and I left him severely depressed. And a few years later, he actually committed suicide after, you know, oh, like wow. after having kind of come to terms with his life and come to terms with his storytelling. And so when I watch this, I just see this, like, again, this perfect encapsulation of Spalding Gray. And I love seeing Spalding Gray in movies. He died, you know, like maybe less than 10 years after this movie. You know, like, there's just a special place in my heart knowing that I got to see him right before he died. And it was tragic and it's horrible, but but he put so much beauty into the world. Like, you know, this film has him in it in a really great, fun, pompous role that, that he would have written a thousand stories about. So it's just this little bit part, but I love it as well. Just like, I love everyone in this film. Like, Robert Duvall just the relationship he has with his daughter in this movie that she doesn't want to talk to him. And we realize that he's been, you know, he's had affairs with all of his reporters, but at the end of it, she picks up to his newspaper, looks at it and goes, Hmm, interesting. You know, he takes that as a win, you know, like it's a small win, but he takes it as a win. I think this movie has so many threads going and never drops a single one of them. None of the actual storylines gets abandoned. None of them feel like that they're shortchanged. They all have like perfectly calibrated through lines that all come together beautifully. That's I, I love this movie. All right, so so we, there, there's one vote for yes that it stands the yeah. test of time. Matt, you seem to be leaning to no, or but I, 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 I don't mean, want to yeah. put words in your mouth. You, no, you no, tell no. us. I, I I will be the dissenter. Um, I already said my piece. I don't need to sort of re- reiterate. I will just say that like when I think of something about the test of time, to Shahir's point, yes, you can time capsule it, and that can be a way you do it. I am, some might say, a very emotionally driven film watcher. And uh, because of that, and because of certain proclivities I have with watching uh, certain types of stories, um, and I put this solely on my shoulders, I have a very difficult time seeing the time capsule and still connecting with it based around just current day events. So the test of time question for me is intrinsically a different one. Um, Again, film craft wise, the way a story is told I think 99% of the story, well, actually, no, I'll even give it 100% of the stories are wrapped up like what Shear says in a complete way. While I am still unsatisfied with the Henry character, that's neither here nor there. That's not a thing of it standing the test of time. I just think that the way it is structured based around the newspaper men and women that is based around a very real world, like hyper difficult issue that should be treated more in the spot <laughs> Ooh, in the spotlight oh i see what you did there yeah uh it, it's hard for me to latch onto. so i will vote nay it does not stand the test of time the only podcast about movies is split down the split middle down the middle must be tuesday that's, a, that's not <laughs> unusual <laughs> alan what do you what do you think does 1994's the paper stand the test of time I really enjoyed this movie, and I feel like this is one of those movies that we watch for the podcast, and I'm just glad that I discovered this movie that I'd never seen and, frankly, never heard of. It just wasn't on my radar at all, and Ron Howard 
In general, I'd call myself a fan. I like a lot of his movies. He's made some uh, not great ones. I believe the most recent one I saw of his was Hillbilly Elegy, which I did (laughs) not like. At all. I don't think that movie stood the test of time a week after it came no. out. <laughs> oh, man, that was going to be the one I wanted to do. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. well, I'll think of another one. That is one. a no. But, like, I like him. Kep, the, the, the screenwriter. David Kep, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's written some really great movies. He's also written... Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So, you know, there there are some varying uh, degrees of his output as well. But I really, really enjoyed the paper. I thought the cast was firing on all cylinders. To your point about, like, the different plot threads that they don't leave any of them hanging, I kind of was hoping for a little bit more with Robert Duvall and his daughter, or maybe a little bit more about why Glenn Close is cheating on her husband like they just kind of mentioned that she is and now she's resolved to stop and you know i think that there's a little bit of the the fact that this movie only takes place in 24 hours so there are some realistic limitations you're not going to explain the root cause of all of these things and then see these things and then address and resolve these things in one day that's not realistic But I think the movie does a really, really good job of juggling everything, telling a lot of stories that I found really interesting, giving a lot of time to different types of stories and different types of characters. And I think that the movie does stand the test of time as an enjoyable movie, even though, yeah, I think there's less of an impact of what will be on this one newspaper's front page. I don't think it's like the biggest deal like it is in this movie today. But I still enjoy the movie, and I think it stands the test of time. So, James, are you going to make us three to one, or are we going to be split between the four of us? What do you think? Well, I'm on the fence here. You know, something to Shayer's point that uh, I think uh, something that might have helped this film immensely would have been a single uh, title card that just said something like, April 3rd, 1995, 7 a.m., right at the beginning of this film, and you solidify, for the audiences watching the theater, this is now, but for us, this is 1995. Because that completely takes it away. It's like watching a a movie about, uh, you know, a record company. Like, yeah, okay, it's in the 50s. That's a movie about a record company. You can't say it doesn't stand up because we don't have as many record companies anymore. But uh, it does uh, lend itself to be sort of a, a contemporary film. So in that regard, that part doesn't stand up. How However, a film like this could be remade. You can change it to an online story and you know, kind of change it to once it's out there, someone's going to screenshot it. So it doesn't matter if you uh, make a change. Like you could remake this and I think you could fix that problem. So that's an easy thing to overcome. One thing in this film is I wish that we didn't know that these kids were innocent. I thought it would have been a little interesting to, you know, sort of like in when you're watching an episode of Law and Order, you kind of figure the first person they bust like really quickly is not going to be the, the bad guy. But we'd figure it out. But I would have liked to go on that journey because we as the audience, we know they're innocent and we're kind of like... Will you get to it already? Like, we know who the bad guy is. It was more like, how is he going to solve it? Um, It's as if I found out that in 1994, there was an episode of Law & Order that basically had Daniel Day-Lewis, Meryl Streep, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Helen Mirren. And it was a good episode, I wouldn't say it was an amazing episode. The way Daniel Day-Lewis delivered that line in the courtroom was amazing. But it was still, it was an episode of Law & Order. This is the film that in almost any other cast and crew, probably I just wouldn't have liked. Uh, It's a master class in acting. The screenplay, it's sharp, it's witty. It was interesting to watch. I don't think I ever have to watch it again. Whatever Rotten Tomatoes is that certifies fresh, is that 60%? I think this film should be like 60.1%. Like, I like it. It's a good film. It didn't rock me to my core. It's just a, a mediocre film to me that's so well done. If you like these actors, absolutely, you're going to get a Michael Keaton treat. This Spalding Gray, I'm not as familiar with him. You're absolutely right. This guy is a delight. 
I'd love to see more of his work. There's a lot in here I loved. I didn't uh, love the film as a whole. Yes, this film stands the test of time. I wish it was a slightly more compelling story to me. Um, I, I really, really liked uh, Marissa Tomei's side story and how much of a jerk he was to her. I thought there was going to be more of a payoff there, actually. And I thought that was a compelling story. But, you know, overall, it, it's a masterclass of acting in a nice episode of Law & Order. And so for <laughs> me, I say it stands the test of time. Okay, Matt, you're the outlier. That's right. You know what? That's totally fine. If the Senate votes against me, I will become the Senate. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing here is I think, because uh, I suggested the last movie that we did, uh, which was uh, William Friedkin's Sorcerer, which I think I was the outlier on. As much as this is a three to one situation of, of uh, standing the test of time, I don't feel like it's a, it's, a, it's a home run. And the next movie that Alan and I have talked about, I feel like it's going to be the home run. That we all think stands the test or that we all don't think stands the test? Well, if we, if we do get to do it, the one that Al and I have been talking about, I think that movie is a home run in terms of like everyone's on board with this movie. Are you going to tell us or is it a surprise? I, I think we should say it because I feel like, Matt, you're sort of like getting the, the short end of the stick of picking a movie. I don't know what the hell I was talking about. Everyone's on a secret chat without me. I am the Senate. <laughs> I okay? have no Matt, idea you what are talking on the about email chains, by the way. I don't read. Listen, <laughs> listen, I'm busy with Senate stuff. <laughs> All right. The movie is Crimson Tide. I think that's a home run. I think everyone's going to love that movie. I have actually never seen it, so I would wow. be down to see that movie. I know I have. I can't tell you a thing about it. And you might be confusing it with The Hunt for Red October, which is uh, it came out around the same time. So. No, I remember, yeah. I remember Hunt for Red October. Yeah, everyone remember okay. Hunt for Red October. But Crimson Tide was another one of those VHS movies for me that sat on the shelf. And then when I revisited it, I was like, holy shit, this thing is amazing. I right. have to say, I cannot believe Alan has not made a very polite correction in something uh, Shahir said. Oh, what was that? I actually said Sorcerer stood the test of time. Oh, that's right. It was James and Shahir who said yes, and Matt and I who said no. So we were split on that one. Oh, Al did not just say no. He said a uh, a very, very distant no to that film. A this very is emphatic true. no. Yeah. But for next time, I think, Matt, we will let you pick. If you yeah. want to do Crimson Tide, cool. If you want to do something else, then you pick whatever you want, and then we will do Crimson Tide for the fourth time. Listen, I have no problem jumping into Crimson Tide. That sounds like a lot of fun. You know what I was thinking of? What's that? You know what I'd be interested in revisiting? Because I honestly do not know if it would stand the test of time. This would be a quest. This wouldn't be something I'm bringing to be like, haha, this is going to do it. Uh, they live. Hmm. The carpenter. Is that the one with the your sunglasses and you can see yep. aliens? Yep. And yep. Uh, which which like 80s action guy was it? Rowdy Roddy Piper. That's my friend. It. The yes, wrestler. Yes, yes. Uh, there's so much that wouldn't. But I actually think there's so much that would it like maybe I wouldn't say it stood the test of time, but it like built to it. Like, I don't know. There's a weird there's a weird like side argument, I think, that we could have. that. anyway, it's at some point we'll, we'll get around. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for, for coming back on the show and, and joining us to talk about this movie that you really love Shahir. Matt, <laughs> yes. not so much, but that's okay. I'm going to yeah, continue yeah. my mission. I'm like the Blues Brothers. There you go. <laughs> the Blues Brothers are still rocking. Uh, we saw them in concert, uh, my wife and I, not that long ago. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but thank you. Thank you guys for coming back on. We will do They Live next, and then we'll go back to Crimson Tide. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, but I, I, I do hope we can get you back on the show again soon, because it's always a lot of fun when you guys pop by. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. This is always a blast. Uh, I, I am always down to uh, <laughs> to argue, not argue, well, <laughs> argue or discuss a film. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, I mean, you, you, you guys argue about movies all the time, so uh, Weekly. You know, uh, uh, and as do James and I. It's yeah. just fun. You know, it's just yes. fun to do. But uh, thank you again for stopping by. And yeah, we'll, we'll definitely uh, get you back on the calendar again soon. Sounds great. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about a movie from 20 years ago set in a semi-distant future? I don't even really remember how distant a future, but we're going to talk about Minority Report. I don't think I've seen this movie since I saw it the first time. I've seen it a couple times, but it's been a minute. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm excited to see what the future looks like as envisioned 20 years ago. Until then, of course, we want to hear from you. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
Also, you should follow the only podcast about movies at Only Movie Pod on Twitter and Only Movie Podcast on Instagram. And we will see you next time, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you. Bye.